Let's take a moment to breathe. Deep inhale. Extend your spine. Remain focused on what you're doing. If safe to do so, exhale slowly, leaning to one side. Inhale back to center. If safe to do so, exhale slowly to the opposite side. Find mental health resources at loveyourmindtoday.org. This message is brought to you by the Huntsman Mental Health Institute and the Ed Council. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. Welcome to Season 9 of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. I've got some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring the one and only Chris Jenner. Oh my gosh, congratulations. That is very, very exciting. And that's just the beginning. We'll also be joined by podcast host Jay Shetty, Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, and many more. So come on in, take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's The Breakfast Club, the world's most dangerous morning show. Hey! Angela E is kind of like the big sister that always pokes you in the forehead. <laughs> That's not how it goes? That's not how anything goes. Yimby's really like a robot. One of the best DJs ever. Believe that. Charlamagne is the wild card. And I'm about to give somebody the credit they deserve for being stupid. I know, that's right. <laughs> what is wrong with you? <laughs> Listen to The Breakfast Club weekday mornings from 6 to 10 on 106.7 The Beat. Columbus is real hip-hop and R&B. Hi, I'm Ethan Adelman, and this is Psychoactive, a production of iHeartRadio and Protozoa Pictures. Psychoactive is the show where we talk about all things drugs. But any views expressed here do not represent those of iHeartMedia, Protozoa Pictures, or their executives and employees. Indeed, as an inveterate contrarian, I can tell you they may not even represent my own. And nothing contained in this show should be used as medical advice or encouragement to use any type of drug. Hello, psychoactive listeners. Today, I'm going to be talking with Anya Sereng. And Anya is perhaps the most well-known and leading and long-standing activist for harm reduction in Russia, which is no easy job, as you can imagine. Now, she's mostly been based in the Netherlands in recent years, where she is the chair of the Andrei Rukov Foundation, which does harm reduction activity and activism in Russia. And yes, that it has still been possible to some extent. But I thought that, especially given what's going on in the world now with Russia's invasion of Ukraine and more and more attention and more and more consciousness among Americans and really the global audience to what's going on, not just in Ukraine, but in Russia, I thought it'd be interesting to have an episode specifically about drugs and drug policy and harm reduction and activism in Russia, and maybe reflect a little bit about what you know insights that provides into Russia more generally. So Anya, thank you so much for joining me on Psychoactive. Ethan, huge thanks for inviting me, and uh, it's a big honor for me. I'm really humbled to 
be a guest on one of your great episodes. And you and I have not seen one another for quite some time, but you have been deeply involved in this now, what, for something like 20 years about trying to advance harm reduction policies and programs and thinking in, in Russia? Uh, yes, over 20 years now. So Russia, right? I mean, you know, if we go back historically, right, the Soviet Union kind of comes apart in the early 1990s. And there's a kind of wild and crazy period in the 90s where borders are open. Boris Yeltsin is the president. Things are a bit chaotic. I think drug use, you know, begins to increase significantly. You know, what was that period like back in the late 90s before Putin? And especially looking at the drug situation back then as well. Uh, was born in 1972, so I was uh, young, but I was like at the age when people start to experiment with drugs. And uh, you are absolutely right. It was like something completely new and something to came to us quite um, massively and unexpectedly. And a lot of young people started to use drugs and uh, started to use drugs by injection. And uh, when they started to work with Medicines and Frontiers, there was a huge uh, concern about the future of HIV epidemic in Russia, which did not start yet, but uh, was about to start uh, because a lot of young people, inexperienced people and people who did not have any information about drugs from their, you know, like parents or they did not see the previous generation using drugs. They started to use and they started to use in quite uh, harmful ways. And was it mostly heroin and heroin coming from Afghanistan? Was that the principal issue? Uh, no, firstly, it was a homemade uh, heroin. We called it hunk or chorne. So it's like homemade opiates and homemade stimulants. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know, maybe you've heard about uh, Vint, the Russian methamphetamine, uh, also mm -hmm. the kind of uh, uh, homemade product. And at first it was that. So Hanka and uh, Vint, they were, as far as I remember, like one of the first, like most popular drugs. And then maybe several years later, actually in the early 90s, the heroin like completely took up all the drug scene, like city by city in Russia, but yes, a bit later. Uh-huh. But even if you go back to the days when, when Russia was occupying Afghanistan, was there already situations of heroin coming back into the country by Russian soldiers, for example, bringing it back or things like that? Or was it fairly small scale until things really kind of uh, open up in the in the later 90s? I think it was uh, quite small scale. There was no like uh, public health emergency. People did not hear much about that. I heard that there was some even like opioid sub like small scale opioid substitution program somewhere in Georgia, but it was not like a huge or visible problem before. Now, I have to tell you, the only time I've ever been to your country, it was back in the spring of 1996. I think it was the annual Russian AIDS conference in St. Petersburg. And I guess, was that a period, I mean, sort of a, a relative openness, you think, in those late 90s, early 2000s, when the sort of more open discussion could happen even in kind of semi-official gatherings? Yes, Ethan, you are absolutely right. Uh, 96 is probably when harm reduction started in Russia it started in St. Petersburg with the support of Medicines du Monde. I think they set up the first 
uh, harm reduction program in Russia that is still running. And uh, again, in the late 90s, like 97, 98, uh, 99, when I worked with Medicines and Frontiers, who set up a huge national program for training of doctors and uh, uh, drug treatment specialists, ACE doctors, there were huge hopes that the, uh, like all these training programs were done with the support of the Ministry of Health. I remember going to outreach in Moscow with a guy who was the uh, chief consultant of the Ministry of Health on drug issues. So the scene was quite quite open and Russian specialists, the Russian doctors, especially drug treatment doctors and especially infectious disease doctors who were looking at the HIV epidemic, they were quite open to the idea of harm reduction. And I remember these conferences, they were always very interesting. Like the first AIDS conferences were amazing. You could meet people from all around the world talking about the experience in AIDS prevention in their countries. The training that MSF set up for the regional doctors was great and we learned so much from our colleagues from other countries. And there was a time of great uh, of great aspirations and the time when we believed that it will be possible to really stop the AIDS epidemic in uh, people who use drugs, people who inject drugs in Russia, despite the huge scale of this group. And there were also expectations that the donors will support the pilot programs of harm reduction, but then they will be taken up by the state and they will be implemented all over Russia, scaled up to reach like 60% of people who use who inject drugs in every city as recommended by WHO uh, organization and so on and so on. And, and a lot of people were released from prisons. I think it was about 30,000 people that were released uh, from prisons back then. Uh, and uh, it was like, but unfortunately, it's the last time the Russian drug policy changed to the bad term. For example, I remember with the support of uh, DFID, there was a huge program planned to scale up harm reduction in two Russian regions and the Ministry of Health was supporting it. Unfortunately, this program didn't happen due to the war uh, uh, in Iraq when the funds were withdrawn, but uh, there were great, you know, like preparations to scaling up harm reduction in a big way in mm -hmm. Russia, which never happened because there was a, well, huge policy turn after 2008, which we can talk about later. Right. Well, we'll get to that. So just for our listeners, just to, uh, you know, uh, Anya's mentioned a few organizations, Monsanto Sans Frontier, which was an organization of doctors working in war zones and otherwise trying to help with things, founded by Bernard Kushner, the former French health minister and politician, and then the organization Médecins du Monde, which sort of spun off, you know, Doctors of the World that spun, spun off from Médecins Sans Frontier with the same leadership, interestingly enough. I think there was some internal division there. And she also mentioned DFID, which was basically the AID, the International uh, Aid uh, Department of the British government. And so these were all quite involved. Now, even when Putin comes in around roughly 2000, right, for the first five or six years, I think things were fairly open. I mean, there was even a kind of shift in the law where drug users were let out of prison. Just say a little more about that, you know, that continuing sort of open period. You're right. There was a little shift in the law. I think it was around 2003, 2004, quite an achievement in the reform of the criminal code of the Russian Federation. Before the shift, it was possible to literally lock a person up for, I don't know, like 10 years for just like something that was found in there. So, it was really harsh and any amount of drugs was considered a large amount of uh, drugs. But after the reform, it 
became a little better. So unfortunately, in Russia, the amount for which a person can be incarcerated is defined by the state and not by a judge. And so the state has to uh, confirm this like table of amounts. And in 2003 was probably the last drug policy reform was successful when the amounts, for example, if we talk about heroin, it was from 0.00 something, a large amount. Mm -hmm. It came to half uh, half gram, so half gram of heroin. Uh, before the half gram, a person was not liable for criminal responsibility. But I think also it's important to understand that I think you know, as an activist, you know, I mean, my my attentions were always global, but the U.S. was obviously my principal preoccupation. And one of the great humiliations of being an American was the fact that we had the highest incarceration rate in the world, going back to roughly the late '80s, early '90s, and continuing to today. But typically, Russia was number two. Russia was the second. Yes, always, of, always after you guys. And I think that may. St- still be the case. How do you explain this, like, you know, long-standing commitment of Russia to high levels of incarceration? Uh, I think it's just because it's like, uh, you know, big land, big prisons. And in this uh, economic transition time, there was a question like what to do with the large poor population. Like people could not get jobs. People, I, I remember because I worked with this Doctors Without Borders, Medicine Some Frontiers, and we went around Russian cities. I went to maybe, well, I don't know, like not every Russian region, but like a lot of them. And I've seen some Russian cities and these cities were economically depressed. Like people could not find a job. People couldn't like the only, like basically the only thing people were interested in was drugs or like drug economy. Well, not everywhere. Of course, people studied and like there was still some groups that could live better. But like for the poor population, I think it was just the, the Russian solution. Yeah. And prisons became so big. Prisons became like a big part of the response to the problem. But I have to say, when you talk about the role of poverty, I mean, lots of other countries have gone through terrible poverty without having anything like the incarceration rates that Russia or the U.S. have had. So has there been a racial or ethnic dimension to what's going on in Russia? Is it mostly about poverty? This kind of comfort with putting people in jail and prison. What is that about in Russia? Well, it's difficult to say there is a history. I mean, if you look at the Yeltsin time, it was the first several years, less than 10 years when we had the glassness, you know, perestroika, when people started to be involved in the discussion. But before, people were just silent and it was convenient to, you know, build up a huge uh, system. And of course, it had to be filled in. There is always an ethnical aspect to the war on drugs. I think the main marker for people to be locked up was the, yeah, was the poverty. I mean, like the the drug use associated with poverty. So it wasn't as if you had disproportionate numbers of Chechens going in or disproportionate numbers of, of people who had come from, uh, you know, former Soviet republics in Central Asia or something like that. It was basically about people, poor people who were using drugs, selling drugs involved in that world who were getting locked up, whereas, you know, more affluent people using drugs generally avoided getting in trouble and a kind of real comfort with the police and government authorities was just throwing people away? I think there was definitely like uh, an ethnic, uh, you know, bias. And especially, as you mentioned, people from the Central Asian, especially from Tajikistan and Uzbekistan, but also Roma people were greatly affected by this bias. But in general, I think the main population that went to prison was just poor people who, who, who got addicted to drugs in this time. 
a lot of reports sort of go back to roughly 2006, 2007, as a kind of moment when things really began to change, when when Putin seems to change, maybe partially in response to things that are happening with NATO in the West, but also with things that are happening domestically in Russia. Uh, I would say for us, the turning point was, was 2009, because we remember it quite clearly, because uh, in 2008, there was an interesting moment when the Russian Minister of Health was presenting at uh, the regional AIDS conference. It was called ECOC, the Eastern European Central Asian AIDS Conference, which was co-sponsored by the Russian uh, government and the United Nations programs, program on AIDS. And she was speaking at the conference. There were many guests from the Global Fund to fight AIDS, uh, tuberculosis and malaria, which became the main donor for the harm reduction programs and other AIDS programs in Russia by then. And I should say it was about 80 harm reduction programs back then uh, in Russia funded by the Global Fund. And she said that we will be able to pick up all these programs. We have the capacity, we have the resources, we have the money, and we will continue everything ourselves. Then a year later, she talks at the Security Council uh, before Dmitry Medvedev, I think he was the president back then, and Putin, the prime minister. Well, she talks before the government and she says that harm reduction contradicts the Russian way and we have our own way to uh, deal with the AIDS problem and harm reduction is not one of them because harm reduction programs have proved ineffective in the Russian context and we will have to follow our own Russian way to deal with drugs and AIDS. And that was in 2009. So that for us was mm -hmm. the main kind of turning point when the official government uh, policy has completely changed. And if before like 2008, 2009, we had at least some hopes that it will be possible to do something and like really like prevent AIDS and HIV in Russia. After 2009, we just uh, realized that the government policy has changed and we will be living in much more challenging times. So just for our listeners to fill in a little a context here, and when Anya mentioned the Global Fund, I mean, that was the organization that's created in the early 2000s, the Global Fund to Fight AIDS, Tuberculosis, tuberculosis and Malaria, or just some, sometimes just called the Global Fund, which is a sort of international financing and partnership organization funded by governments and some private foundations like the Gates Foundation, which has given out almost $50 billion to fight AIDS, tuberculosis, and malaria over the last uh, roughly 20 years. So there comes this point where the Russian government basically says, we don't want your money and we don't want your ways. And that's roughly 2009, Anya? Uh, yes. In 2009, they started to really like close up on the international partnerships and uh, slowly, slowly uh, sending home all the donors, including the UN agencies, the UN Office on Drugs and Crime has been shut down in Russia and, well, UN Development uh, Program, of course. Uh, so all the like major UN programs have been shut down. When I think about it, you know, it means, though, what you're saying, though, is in that first decade of the 2000s, you say there were roughly 70, 80 harm reduction programs mm -hmm up and going yep. in Russia. And I assume many of them were doing needle exchange. And it was not just in big cities like Moscow and St. Petersburg, but in quite a number of other places in Russia. It was all over Russia. Like Russia has a 89, I think, uh, so-called oblast or uh, territories. And in every of these territories, we had the harm reduction 
program pilot in a major city. Uh, so there were over 80 pro uh, in some smaller cities as well. So we had like pilots in bigger and smaller cities to see uh, how they can reach uh, out to people. And yes, there were needle exchange programs and needle and syringe programs. Opioid substitution treatment has been always prohibited in Russia. And there is a provision in the Russian law that prohibits to provide opioid or like any kind of prohibited or controlled substances to people with with uh, drug addiction. So opioid substitution treatment was not, it was like uh, an issue for all the international organizations and later for ourselves, uh, more like uh, local grassroots community advocacy group to fight for substitution treatment. But the uh, needle and syringe programs, outreach programs, um, you know, access to HIV, testing and later treatment, improved access, they were av available in Russia. So it was a period of relative openness, I guess, in, in that way. Now, I, I mean, I also presume that certain regions were much more sympathetic and open, where others were much more grudging or repressive. Um, even at, I mean, were there any standout regions back in the day that were particularly supportive of harm reduction in a more cutting edge way? Yeah, I mean, there were regions that were more supportive. And I remember, uh, for example, St. Petersburg from the very early times, they enjoyed the support of the city, you know, the hospitals and the uh, municipal budget and uh, the local specialists and the local decision makers were much more open to the idea of harm reduction and uh, scaling it up through the local medical uh, system, like health system. Whereas, for example, in Moscow, where we worked, uh, uh, all harm reduction was uh, prohibited by the former mayor, and he he uh, issued an order prohibiting all the like health organizations in the city to participate in any kind of harm reduction, needle and syringe programs, outreach, and so on. So there was definitely a difference in approaches, but like most of the cities were convinced by the Ministry of Health and uh, uh, other partners like earlier in the history that harm reduction is a good approach to the problem. And only the most conservative city governments like the Moscow uh, the Moscow city government, they really opposed harm reduction from the early days. You know, so I, I actually have to ask you this question. So, I mean, you've been living in the Netherlands for a number of years, years now, now yes. but seven years, but you're still a Russian citizen, yes. right? Yes. And, and, and you still have family in Russia and you're running a, a, a foundation, Andre Rikla Foundation or, you know, chairing it that, that is active there. So in our, us having this conversation, now it's seeming like increasingly repressive just this year and since the invasion. Do you have to worry about some of this stuff in your conversation with me right now? Uh, not in the conversation, but we do have the worries uh, about the security of our work. I mean, we had this worries before, and I should say that our organization is a foreign agent organization. Uh, we were included in the list in 2016. I mean, the situation was getting worse and worse year after year. And uh, now, after, they, after Russia started the war in Ukraine, the situation in Russia is becoming very, very dark. And uh, we honestly don't know what will happen. We have, of course, like discussed a lot all the security measures and like we have relocated several people from our organization already. Uh, to other countries, to Georgia, but most of the people are still in Moscow and uh, we are still doing everyday outreach work and needle and syringe provision to our clients, the case management, the street lawyers program, the mental health program. So we're still doing the work, but we just like 
more and more prepared that this may not be maybe at some point even possible. But to be honest, like I told you about the situation with the Moscow government like years ago, but still we were we were the first who started the needle and syringe program in Moscow, despite all these uh, concerns. And we kind of trained ourselves to, uh, yeah, to work in very difficult conditions and like in the situation when maybe next year or even like next month we'll have to suspend our activities. And we've been able to continue our work since 2009 uh, every day with everyday awareness that it may not be for a long time. And now we are very concerned what will happen in Russia uh, because we are looking at the complete, like probably closure on the civil society. And you probably know that a number of, well, all the international uh, human rights organizations have been expelled in Russia just uh, this week. Uh, including Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International, and so on. Yes, it's not a safe, definitely not a safe space for civil society organization to do the harm reduction work. And is it apart from Moscow and St. Petersburg, are there still some other pockets in the country where harm reduction programs and activism is still possible? There are some other organizations that are doing harm reduction, uh, but I think uh, now due to the, to the financial and, of course, the political situation, uh, it will become like more and more, well, it's already too difficult, too difficult. And mm-hmm. people are being really like exposed to a huge pressure on behalf of the government or all the... Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I, I was reading about one program or one area, like I think in, in the city of Kazan in the Republic of T- uh, Tatarstan, which is, I think, well, you know, a republic that's maybe one third Muslim. And that that was also a place that had harm reduction, at least until recently or hopefully even until today. Uh, yes, actually, Tatarstan was one of these like territories where they plan to scale up. Like when I was talking about the DIFT program, they pl- Tatarstan was one of the friendly territories that were ready to support harm reduction financially and that were quite open to the idea and where there were like a huge number of great specialists who uh, work in the AIDS or drug field and they were supporting harm reduction. But now I think all these activities have stopped. Yeah, I, I, there is no harm reduction program anymore. It just became too, too wow. dangerous to, yeah, to continue this work. We'll be talking more after we hear this ad. Grand Canyon University, an affordable private Christian university, is one of the largest and fastest growing universities in the country, offering more than 270 programs online. In addition to federal grants and aid, GCU's online students received nearly $130 million in institutional scholarships in 2022. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private, Christian, affordable. Visit gcu.edu slash myoffer to see the scholarships you may qualify for. Let's take a moment to breathe. Deep inhale. Extend your spine. Remain focused on what you're doing. If safe to do so, exhale slowly, leaning to one side. Inhale back to center. If safe to do so, exhale slowly to the opposite side. Find mental health resources at loveyourmindtoday.org. This message is brought to you by the Huntsman Mental Health Institute and the Ed Council. Welcome to season nine of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. It is 2024, and we're going to get through this together, folks. My campaign promise to all of you here on Next Question is going to be a good time the whole time, we hope. 
I have some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring Kris Jenner, who's got some words of wisdom for me on being a good grandmother, or in her case, a good lovey. You know, you start thinking of what you want your grandmother name to be. Like, are they going to call me grandma like I called my grandmother? So I got to choose my name, which is now Lovey. I'll also be joined by Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, to name a few. So come on in and take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. I loved it. Your energy and joy. I'm squeezing every minute I can for you out of this season of Next Question. Last question, I promise. You have to go. I have to go. (laughs) But it's been so fun. And I can't wait for you to hear it. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Zuko and Kayla from The Wake Up Call. Enjoy your podcast, but when you're done, don't forget about us. We have a radio show. We try to bring a smile to your face every morning. We also talk to some of the hottest country stars of today, and we like to share some good news with That's What I Like. Because Lord knows that's hard to find. When you're done podcasting your podcast, listen to us at 92.3 WCOL. Set your preset on your radio right now, and don't forget you can listen to us online on the iHeartRadio app. You know, you mentioned before that there's no opioid substitution treatment, no methadone, no, no buprenorphine, and, and that Russia is really, I mean, it's been remarkable in its absolute indifference to the science, the evidence, the fact that this is the recommended treatment for heroin or other opioid addiction by the World Health Organization and almost every other reputable organization around the world, and, and that even as you see methadone maintenance programs emerging in parts of Asia, you know, Vietnam, China. China, Indonesia, you name it, where which you couldn't even imagine methadone maintenance programs 20 years ago. You know, even as you see it popping up in, in even all, all other countries that used to be part of the Soviet Union, Russia has this sort of fierce ideological opposition to it, right? And, and this, call, I think they call it narcological establishment, narcology is what they call like the drug addiction expertise. I mean, can you just give us some more insight into this and why this crazy ideological craziness in terms of opposing any methadone? buprenorphine, especially in the face of rising opioid addiction problems? Uh, Yeah, Ethan, it has always been a mystery for me and for anyone who tried to understand this issue, why there is such a huge opposition to a simple public health intervention, like the uh, first-line intervention for people with uh, opioid uh, dependency or other problems related to opioid use. So it is not clear why there is such a huge opposition. There is a theory, though, that is a historical opposition, and uh, one of the fathers of uh, Russian, like founding fathers of the Russian narcology, academician Bobayan, who was also a very prominent figure in the Russian uh, psychiatry, uh, in the Serbsky Institute, the kind of homeland for the uh, repressive psychiatry, the psychiatry that was used against the dissidents in the late uh, 70s and 80s. He was the, f- the first person who, who started to deal with drug, uh, drug addiction and alcohol addiction problems, and he modeled these uh, interventions on the basis of this repressive psychiatry kind of philosophy. He was also for a long time a member of uh, the International Narcotic Control Board. You know, Russia has been on the board for a long, long, long time, and maybe also one of the reasons why the International Narcotic Control Board uh, became such a 
comparatively a repressive organ in monitoring the implementation of the conventions uh, on drugs. So this is the same person, the same person who was in power very much on the international arena, but he was also in power in Russia. And he kind of conceptualized the whole like this, you know, uh, mandatory labor and the labor camps for people who use drugs or people who are addicted or to drugs or alcohol. And he is the one who was very much opposed to opioid substitution treatment. He thought that drugs could not be provided to people with addiction, that drug cannot be a solution to a drug problem. And this philosophy, it became the kind of main belief of the of the Russian ideologist who worked in the drug treatment uh, field. Academician yeah. I mean, it Eduard Babayan. Uh huh. It almost seems like a quasi-religious commitment. It was because you know you, you can understand like you know China with the history of the opium wars and they had this resistance you know not just to heroin but obviously even to methamphetamines and then 15 years ago or whatever they make a you know they turn around on this thing and countries Malaysia as I said Malaysia Indonesia Iran right you know which has methadone maintenance and then you even see I mean as I when I was looking at the map uh, just recently of the former Soviet republics it looks like essentially. All of them, you know, except for uh, maybe uh, Turkmenistan or something like that. Mm -hmm. But all of the other former Soviet Union you know, have, have needle exchange and methadone with a few small exceptions. So it seems like this fellow you're mentioning may have influenced things more broadly during the Soviet Union. It's only in Russia where it remains this almost article of faith. Did, would you meet people working in the Ministry of Health and others who are sort of embarrassed by this ideological opposition to methadone? Uh, yes, definitely. Well, I agree with you completely that it's rather like a symbolic, uh, symbolic belief or, as you say, religious belief of the Russian specialists. And I think it was used from the very beginning as this kind of point that Russian narcology, as it was called, is different from the Western narcology that is based on its own, like, I don't know, epistemology and is based on its own Russian way. So it was from the very beginning, like a very big, a very big thing for the decision makers and a lot of decision makers, including some people who worked in the Ministry of Health, both on the sides of AIDS and on the sides of drugs, they tried to challenge that because they understood, uh, understood perfectly well that it's a great tool to stop the AIDS or at least like uh, slow down the AIDS epidemic in this uh, population and also to provide help to people with opioid uh, dependency. Of course, later it also became an issue when a lot of people already had HIV and they could not get access to antiretroviral medicines because they were considered not uh, productive for the society and uh, also because they could not be maintained without the opioid substitution treatment. So there was, and of course, also treatment of tuberculosis, opioid substitution treatment could be a great uh, key to like preventing the multidrug-resistant tuberculosis uh, epidemic that we had in Russia. Uh, so it was clear to everyone who worked in health that it would be a really like great solution to a lot of problems. And people, including great, you know, medical specialists, uh, academicians and like, uh, you know, professors and even officials from the Ministry of Health, they were supporting substitution treatment. But there was always something 
that was opposing it. And the something was the conservative ideology. And whenever people pushed too far, they just lost their positions. And at some point, it became just impossible for Russian professionals. And that probably in the mid-2000s, when it became completely impossible for the Russian pro professionals to talk about uh, opioid substitution treatment. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing. Because, you know, I remember I looked, I took a look at your website for the Andre Rico Foundation, uh, and, and there's almost nothing on it now. And my recollection was, you know, years ago, there was a lot of interesting information about harm reduction, and maybe stuff on methadone, and, <laughs> and your cases in the European Court of Human Rights and all that sort of stuff. But now, I, I think, you know, it's, it's, there's almost nothing to find there. And I, is it basically the point where even talking about methadone maintenance, much less advocating for it, is actually criminalized in Russia now? Yeah, talking about all all the uh, illegal substances is a danger. And we, like the first time our, yeah, you are right, we had a great, great website. And of course, we put all the like uh, regulations and all the normative guidance and all the like medical guidance on the website. And we also had the recommendation from WHO, from the UN Committee on Economical, Social and Cultural Rights uh, that recommended that Russia legalize opioid substitution treatment back in 2011 or 2012. And uh, our website was first attacked by the Federal Drug Control Service back in 2013. And it was just shut down with without any legal action by the Federal Drug Control Service. Then uh, we challenged them in court and the site uh, went back online and we have maintained it for another like long time, although we received a lot of like administrative punishment and fines. One of the biggest fines was when we published information about harm reduction on uh, newly psychoactive substance, like the methadone harm reduction on methadone. Uh, we published information and we were fined with like around 10,000 uh, euro for just like publishing the harm reduction information on the website. But uh, the last attack was in 2020 when during the COVID pandemic, a journalist published an article with our citations and about the very like difficult situation, economical situation during the pandemic for people who use drugs. And we were attacked by the Duma parliament member of the Russian Federation. And uh, we just realized that it's too dangerous to have so much open information. And we put our website to the bare minimum. We now only have the contacts and the like basic information about the organization mm -hmm. and the donate button. <laughs> Yeah. You know, I remember that, that you guys and your allies were doing some very creative activism in the past. It reminded me of some of the stuff that ACT UP did in the United States back in the 80s and 90s and early aughts around around drugs and around AIDS and this sort of stuff. So just let our audience know a few examples of some of your, you know, more provocative and, and successful campaigns over the years. Well, I love to remember the name of the person, Andrei Rilkov, the person uh, who was our friend and hero. He's the one like who was the leader and probably like the the initiator of this uh, ACT UP inspired movement in Russia, the movement to include people who use drugs uh, into the list of patients who can receive antiretroviral treatment. So in, let's say, 2003, 2004, it was 2005, it was still quite difficult for people who use drugs and there was many, it was always like 80% of all people with HIV in Russia, but they could not get access to antiretroviral uh, treatment because they were 
considered like socially unreliable and so on. And Andrei Relkov and uh, some other uh, other our friends uh, have set up the Front AIDS movement, and that was the like very bright movement. Which uh, the guys uh, chained themselves to like the municipal buildings or to the Ministry of Health. There was a huge banner in Moscow, and there was an action. You know, when they came out to Saint Petersburg with the uh, coffins and also attracting attention to the tragedy of the AIDS, you know, of the AIDS that could be prevented. So it was quite inspired movement, the front AIDS in Russia. Uh, Andrei Elkov died in 2006. Uh, he was also an activist drug user and a great, great inspiration for all of us. Um, but he died. And in 2009, when we started our organization, we decided to take his name and to continue his create like drug user activist. He was activism. Mm -hmm. He was a great inspiration. You know, going back to these narcologists, right, and their anti-methadone thing, I mean, my understanding is that they sometimes, in, in place of methadone, back some really bizarre forms of drug, what they call drug treatment, although sometimes it sounds to me more like torture. Can mm -hmm. you just say a little more about that? Well, the drug treatment in Russia is really like um, based on the very old protocols. And the drug treatment in Russia is organized in the way that the, like, the medical part of drug treatment is controlled by the state. So it's impossible to run a drug clinic if you are not a state institution. So we have a system of uh, so-called narcology, uh, drug treatment centers and drug treatment clinics, but they are all run by the state. So basically they work for the state. And uh, there is uh, a lot of more private or church or like religious groups uh, based rehabilitation centers. And unfortunately, both of these systems are not effective. So the state-run system is based on, well, as we already discussed, we don't have uh, methadone or buprenorphine substitution treatment. So there is not really much that the system can offer. Uh, so they use detoxification and sometimes they use, yes, they do use like very old protocols and uh, some medicines that have been already expelled, like haloperidol, for example, that has been already like uh, not used even in the psychiatry, but they use in the drug treatment protocol up to now. But also the most cruelty probably came from the private rehabilitation center. I don't know if you remember or if you've heard the story of the city without drugs in Yekaterinburg. It was a popular group. Yekaterinburg is a big city, big industrial city, about 3 million people, I think, in the Ural, in the Ural Mountains, uh, so like mm -hmm. in the beginning of Siberia. So there was a group called City Without Drugs who started to fight with the Roma people, with the ethnic minorities, and with people who use drugs, and they promised to clean up the city with their own with their own means and they started to like kidnap people from their homes sometimes prompted by their parents who did not know what to do and uh, people were kept on like in very torturous conditions they were beaten up and they were chained to beds for like months without proper food and it was considered quite normal I would say it's not anymore, but back then in the early and mid 2000s, it was considered quite a reasonable approach to uh, solving the drug problem. And if you talk to like 
Russian people, they would say, yes, of course, it's quite extreme to beat up and torture people and like chain them to beds. But, you know, it's uh, junkies and they first have to become humans and to become humans, they have to go through all this like horrible you know, all this horrible treatment. And this model, it became quite popular. And I would say that until now, kidnapping people from their homes, uh, keeping them in really torturous conditions, not providing them with medical treatment for their, I don't know, infectious diseases or any other diseases, it's quite a norm. And there was like always an attempt by the state to introduce some quality standards or some... Uh, safety guide, uh, guidance and of course many of these actions are illegal like kidnapping people or like keeping them against their will but this model of so-called rehabilitation it became like super popular in Russia and in many cities it's still like the only quote-unquote quote solution like for families who don't know what to do with their children and people would even pay mm -hmm. for, their ch uh, for their children to be tortured in this you know, rehabilitation centers. You know, I, I wish I could say that, oh, this is outrageous compared to America. But, you know, sure. even the United States, I mean, we had these private organizations. So there was one fairly notorious one, I think, based in Florida. And it was the same thing. You'd have, you know, upper middle class, somewhat wealthy parents who were freaked out about their kids doing drugs. Sometimes the kids had real drug problems. Sometimes it was just, you know, smoking too much weed or something mm -hmm. like that. And they would pay to have them sent to these programs, you know, these kind of tough, kind of tough love type things. And ultimately, you know, some people died in these programs and eventually they were shut down because they were sued and things like that. Never, I don't think, any criminal charges. But part of what gave it its staying power was that the founders was a couple named Mel and Betty Sembler. Mm -hmm. uh, Betty Sembler was one of the leading kind of, you know, kind of you know, anti-drug fanatics who should have just been dismissed as a kind of, you know, nutcase. But her husband, Mel, happened to be chairing the finance committee of the Republican National committee, you know, appointed by, I think, Reagan or Bush to be ambassador to Italy and to Australia. You know, he could get any single, you know, he could get to the White House on a phone call. He could get any Republican senator. And these guys were enormously politically powerful and able to, you know, semi-legitimize this type of approach, you know, in our own country. So America was not just, you know, exceeding Russia in terms of incarceration rates, but we were also um, somewhat in lockstep on some of these other repressive approaches. Yeah, but I think America America was the model country where all this like, you know, political campaigns based on the war on drugs and like toughness in the war on drugs on this or that scale, be it on the scale of the nation or like on the local scale that uh, became, well, they proved themselves effective if you are against drugs by any means then you will be popular. And the same actually happened in Yekaterinburg. There was the person behind all of this, Evgeny Roisman, who became a super popular person. He was elected in the state uh, Duma, the parliament, and he became the mayor of Yekaterinburg exactly for torturing people and keeping them in these rehabilitation centers. So it's quite amazing, but uh, this uh, approach, it has been super popular. So I think it also inspired, you know, other so-called society activists in a bad way to promote the same model because they saw that they can also gain some political weight from it. 
I see. You know, I, I, let me ask you about on the policing side. I mean, I, you know, you co-authored an article some years ago with some other, you know, scholars and such about the nature of drug policing in Russia and pointing out not just how, you know, kind of vicious it could be, but how sometimes there were oftentimes, you know, even elements of torture um, and sometimes even fairly pervasively in terms of the way in which police interacted with drug users, not just humiliating them and beating them, but actually torturing them. And it makes me wonder when you look at something like the Philippines with a president, a democratically elected president Duterte, who basically encourages police around the country to go out and literally kill people involved with methamphetamine uh, and not just not just sellers, but oftentimes just simple users as well. And, you know, where thousands, maybe tens of thousands of people have been killed and where the president says, I'll protect you, I'll protect you. Right. I mean, what keeps Putin from doing something like that? Could Putin do a Duterte? Could he send out that word? Could you see such a phenomenon happening in Russia? Uh, I think Putin is doing Duterte, but just in a different way. And uh, I think the police, they can pretty much do anything they want, probably not kill people, but they don't need to. They can just like send a person to prison or to a camp and the person is very likely to die of AIDS uh, complications of tuberculosis. Uh, of overdoses on the release uh, from the camps. There is the whole system that kills people for you. You don't need the police officer to do it. But the police officers are definitely given like impunity in treating people who use drugs. And like we reported on the tortures that are everyday, routine, normalized, completely accepted tortures to, towards people who use drugs, uh, women who use drugs. The system is designed in a way to kill a person and basically any sentence for drug use becomes a death sentence. But also the system is tortures throughout like from the first uh, contact with the medical service, from the first contact with the police, uh, from the first uh, contact with other law enforcement, I don't know, like courts and so on, people are going through humiliation, people are going through physical torture, people are going through money extortion, people are just not treated, you know, women are getting deprived of their children, like the whole system is torturous. And uh, we have been documenting it since the very beginning of our work. And unfortunately, what we are seeing now in Ukraine, the tortures of peaceful uh, civilians. Unfortunately, we've seen mm -hmm. it before and we've been witnessing and documenting this uh, on the fields of the war on drugs in Russia since 2009. Yeah, I mean, I was sort of one example, I guess, of where you see this is when when Russia seized Crimea from Ukraine in 2014. And my understanding is they basically just shut down all the methadone programs. And within the space of a year, I don't know, was it 10 or 20 percent of all the people who had been in these programs had, had died one way or another? Uh, yes. Uh, well, I think it was a thousand people at least who were just basically kicked out on the street. And it was a huge tragedy for all of us. Our Ukrainian colleagues could not believe that this is possible until the very like last minute they were, you know, writing to us and uh, saying, no, 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 but we will write to the World Health Organization or we will write to the UN, we will write to the UN program on AIDS and they will talk to the Russian Ministry of Health. They just don't know what's going on. You know, that people are ge getting kicked out on the street and getting like deprived of, of, of their medicine. But I was just so amazed how the Ukrainian colleagues believed that it's impossible to just do that 
to people. And I think that's why I realized how different our mentality was. We were already witnessing this evil for so many years and we were witnessing what was like happening with people. So 2014, when like a thousand people were kicked out on the street, it was just kind of normal for us who were witnessing the same thing every day for many years in Russia. And of course, it was a huge mm -hmm. tragedy and many like people did not get any support. They were promised support. They were promised that they will be taken to Russia, but even like to the rehabilitation centers and so on. And few people were, but few people also died in this like rehabilitation programs in Russia or like they ran away or it just never happened. So most people... Uh, lost their treatment and uh, you are right that about maybe 10% of these people have died. We don't know the precise uh, estimates because of course the medical specialists who had the contact before with their patients, they lost all contact. Let's take a break here and go to an ad. My name is Ariel. I moved to the U.S. at 19. I spoke no English and I struggled finding job opportunities. Everything I have, I owe to the Adult Literacy Center and getting my high school diploma at age 22. It was an honor helping you achieve your greatness. Now you're helping others achieve theirs. It inspires me. When you graduate, they graduate. Find free and supportive adult education centers near you at finishyourdiploma.org. Brought to you by Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council. Welcome to season nine of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. It is 2024, and we're gonna get through this together, folks. My campaign promise to all of you here on Next Question is going to be a good time the whole time, we hope. I have some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring Kris Jenner, who's got some words of wisdom for me on being a good grandmother, or in her case, a good lovey. You know, you start thinking of what you want your grandmother name to be. Like, are they going to call me grandma like I called my grandmother? So I got to choose my name, which is now Lovey. I'll also be joined by Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, to name a few. So come on in and take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. I loved it. Your energy and joy. I'm squeezing every minute I can for you out of this season of Next Question. Last question, I promise. You have to go. I have to go. <laughs> but it's been so fun. And I can't wait for you to hear it. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You know, I mean, I have to say, I mean, I, maybe this is the American in me, but I've also been a you know student of international relations for much of my adult life. Putin has always just struck me. I mean, I've been saying this for 20 years. He's basically the world's greatest gangster, like the <laughs> ultimate mafiosa kingpin in a way that he thinks that way. Uh, his mentality is that way. It's not that he doesn't have also some broader, greater vision of greater Russia and all this sort of stuff. And that helps to justify things. But in terms of a tactics and mentality, on some level, that seems to be the way he thinks, the way he operates. And when you look at the people, I mean, if you look, for example, the occupation of Donetsk and Luhansk, it almost just seems like he puts the gangsters in charge. If you look at Chechnya, once again, it's putting in basically gangsters in charge. It's the idea of kind of fusing gangsterism 
them in governance in a way that's not unique to what Putin's doing. It happens in other parts of the world as well. The whole thing sort of seems of a piece. And and maybe there's even an element of that when one looks at the invasion of Ukraine. And, you know, yes, the, great, the vision of greater Russia and his claims that Ukraine was always part of Russia and it's part of the heart of Mother Russia. But on the other hand, the tactics, the mentality, and the people he puts in charge, you know, I'm not saying this about the Russian army, but on other levels, a kind of gangster mentality that permeates things. And it manifests, obviously, in drug policy in the way we've been talking about, but maybe more globally as well. I don't know if you're totally free to speak about this, but are there any thoughts or reflections or reactions to the way I just laid that out? Well, Ethan, I think you laid it out perfectly. Uh, as a Russian citizen, I can only say that Putin is the great leader of our people, and he will bring us to the final victory of Putinism. <laughs> Okay. Can I say any more? Uh-huh. So there's another question I wanted to ask you about. My understanding is that, you know, after this home-growing meth and opioids that, that, that you were talking about, uh, would you call it a, a kanka, the homemade opioid, and, and vinca, homemade uh, methamphetamine. Um, but then it goes through a period of heroin from Afghanistan coming through Central Asia being a major part of the problem. And then there's a more recent era, a few years ago, with the explosive growth of the use of the internet and the dark net and the website Hydra that seems to play a major role in changing drug markets. Also, Telegram Messenger, another thing. So just tell us about, you know, how that has changed the drug situation, the illicit drug situation in Russia. It is amazing how Russia has like complete, well, maybe not completely, but majorly switched to the dark web technologies in terms of like like the selling drugs and that probably happened mostly in like major cities but in other cities as well i mean hydra was a huge market that covered not only russia but also like other russian-speaking countries maybe to a less extent but in russia i would say especially like in moscow at some point it became impossible to or very difficult to buy drugs in any other way other than through this uh, market. And uh, as you know, Hydra has been recently uh, shut down by the German and American services. That happened Mm -hmm. just last week. And uh, we don't know how the system will adjust because for many, many years, Hydra and the large market before that, it was the main kind of uh, platform for drug, like the drug purchases. Uh, But how it will change now, we don't know. But yes, you are right. It has completely changed the way uh, that Russian people have at least procured drug and drugs. And I don't know if your listeners have heard about like this whole ethnography of the, you know, treasures. And so basically, when you purchase drugs on uh, Hydra, you purchase with the cryptocurrency and you get the location in return. So you don't get your drugs by mail, but you get the geolocation. And then you have to go to this geolocation and find the treasure. And that can be like nearer to your house, but it can be also very far. And there are stories about like people going to cemeteries, like in the middle of winter or like, you know, forests and having to dig in the snow. I don't know, like half meter, meter treasures. So it's a lot of like 
folklore about Hydra and about the way the Russian market operates uh, operated until now. We don't know what will happen, but yes, it was quite an amazing, I think, phenomenon. Uh, well, if you have a darknet source like this, it can involve all sorts of other things that an autocratic government like you have in Russia doesn't want happening. And so you would think that an autocratic government would see this as something of a threat, a kind of Russian language darknet source. And that therefore, you know, I mean, I only can speculate that it's only allowed to persist because security agencies have some understanding um, about what's going on there or what will be tolerated. But you say there's no evidence one way or the other, really. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because the Russian like official rhetoric, they always targeted the Internet. And even Putin, a couple of years ago, he talked about the danger of like uh, drug, the drugs are sold on the Internet. So uh, we could never figure out was there any confusion and uh, why they focused on the Internet and the way like it happened that they focused on the information about drugs or information on harm reduction rather than the dark net where the drugs actually were. Nobody sold uh, drugs on Internet. So it's interesting, yes, but it's not clear and the, 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 the picture is completely vague. What's interesting also about about the shift of illicit drug markets from the streets to the dark net, and obviously it's not a one to one switch, and people can be buying some drugs in bulk on the dark net and then distributing them on the streets as well. But there's also interesting harm reduction potential in a variety of ways when drug sales shift to the dark net. I mean, one is the fact that you don't have the problems with you know uh, selling drugs on the street, which can be disruptive of communities, not just in Russia, but I'm thinking even more you know, the Western world as well. A second thing is that to the extent that you have people writing reviews of the products you're getting, there's the opportunity to post information about what these drugs are and maybe to put mm -hmm. a, a higher level of reliability in terms of what the drug supply is and what consumers are getting. And so I'm curious, I mean, how do harm reduction organizations, you know, I mean, yours and humanitarian action, the few others that exist, how do they perceive the ups and downs of Hydra and, and Telegram and all that in terms of the evolution of drug markets? Uh, well, I must acknowledge that Hydra did good harm reduction work themselves. I should tell you one thing, that fentanyl was never available on Hydra. Or it was available maybe in the very, very beginning, but then they just prohibited the sale of fentanyl in their shops uh, on the market. So fentanyl epidemic did not touch Russia because it was prohibited by Hydra themselves. And uh, they also had like even the harm reduction facility. Well, they didn't call it harm reduction facilities, but they have had drug testing. So they would randomly like test and publish uh, the results of the purchases on their reviews. And they even had like a drug treatment, narcology doctor consulting people or like a hotline for uh, drug issues, they organized it themselves as well. So there was someone or I don't know, like maybe a community thought behind this uh, interventions. But the fact that we did not have a fentanyl epidemic, uh, I think it's really a huge thing. And that mm -hmm. was due to the harm reduction measures implemented on Hydra. Well, let me ask you another question okay. and also a theory of mine. I, I don't have anything to prove it. But in some respects, Russia is really the great colonial 
empire of the 20th century. You know, colonialism was something we associated with with France and England and a few other Dutch, you know, the European countries in really the 17th, 18th, 19th century. And really, colonialism for Russia, I think maybe especially in the 20th century under the Soviet Union, where you have significant migrations of Russian, you know, ethnic Russians into other of the Soviet republics. And then this comes, here's the part of my theory that gets down to the drug piece here, that when the Soviet Union crumbles 30 years ago, and you have these Russian-speaking minorities left in many of these now independent countries, and I'm thinking here especially of the Baltics, you know, Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, but maybe it's true elsewhere as well. And my perception has been that sometimes the drug problems and injecting drug problems that emerge are worse among the Russian-speaking minorities in these countries than among others. And my theory is, is that this is a group of people whose grandfathers and even parents had been in a relatively privileged position in these countries, in the Baltics and maybe some others. And now they are in a kind of disprivileged. Now, as Russian speakers, sometimes not even speak, you know, the national language, Estonian, Lithuanian, Latvian, or maybe in other countries, that they are now worse off, you know, whereas their fathers and grandparents had been better off, now they're worse off. And maybe that helps explain higher rates of drug problems among the Russian-speaking minorities. What do you think of my theory? Uh, yes, for sure, especially in the Baltic. I mean, I've been involved in some research, especially in Estonia, and in some like Russian regions of Estonia uh, in the early 2000s. And definitely the Russian population was very affected because they lost the jobs and they lost the citizens' rights and they, they became like the most marginalized economically group. And of course, this group in some of the regions, or especially in the Baltic countries, they became very, very affected by the drug problems and by the HIV epidemic. So, you know, Anya, I haven't really asked you about how you got involved in all of this. Why? I mean, were you, you yourself an active drug user and got caught up in, in the way many people get caught up in harm reduction? Or was it in another way? I mean, what brought you to this? I was never a systematic drug user, I would say, or I never had like uh, major problems with drugs. Uh, but I got involved because my friends, I was just, you know, really interested in this work that my friends got involved in the work uh, of uh, the Doctors Without Boards. Do you remember the American photographer John Reynard, who spent a lot of uh, time in, uh, I don't know if you've seen his work, but he was an, an amazing person who spent a lot of time in Russia and he was really looking at the, the beginning of the HIV epi epidemic and at the time when the injection drug use suddenly became very, very popular. And he was the one who linked the Medicines and Frontiers back then with the community of people who use drugs in Moscow. And so my friends and me, we were part of one of these communities. They got involved and I got very interested in this work. And then I got to meet like quite amazing people through like this uh, collaboration in the first outreach project. And it just became quite an, a fascinating and uh, 
amazing path for me. I mean, I didn't have a career back then, and it seemed to me like a very, very, very fascinating and interesting things to be involved in. So that's how I got involved. And of course, a lot of my friends were affected because, uh, yes, there were young people and a lot of young people were using drugs and a lot of people were using drugs problematically and a lot of people were already dying. And that affected me personally as well. And when you were still living in Russia before you moved mm -hmm. to the Netherlands, I mean, were there moments where you were really afraid for your safety or about getting arrested? Uh, yeah, we were, we, were, we were always afraid. I mean, I felt pretty safe until like 2009 uh, when I worked for international organizations and later for like the Russian Harm Reduction Network. But when we started our own Russian Harm Reduction Network was, was also like a big show that provided support mostly from the Global Fund to the uh, Russian community of like this harm reduction enthusiasts. But like starting in 2009, when we started to work, when we started to hand out needles on the streets of Moscow, we were afraid because like the Moscow government was against and they, they were like measures against needle and syringe program. You know, the civil society activists, like the, for example, this uh, guys from the city without drugs, which has also its branch in Moscow. Mm -hmm. And it was always like quite scary. And they must say the people I work with are like real heroes in this regard. So basically we decided our strategy already back then and like up to now is that we decided that, I mean, we have to do this work. I mean, we see the people, you know, I mean, we know the miracle of harm reduction. We see that people are suffering and we know how to uh, provide tools for people to suffer less. So we have to do this work. We have to serve our community. Of course, it's scary. And of course, there are like always like so many dangers but then, uh, I mean, we decided, okay, I mean, we will just keep working until it's possible. And we are adjusting our, you know, safety measures. We are adjusting our communications. We are adjusting our work every day. We like very, we are trying to be as careful as it's possible in these conditions, given that we are dealing with very, very controversial issue. No, I mean, it's when you see what Putin's saying now about an ever-broadening minority of Russians, you know, of those who don't fully support the cause, it does seem like he's basically taking the prototype, that, 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 that the targeting of drug users and people involved with illicit drugs really became a model for a broader targeting or a broader sector of society who did not want to go along with his vision. Or oh, Ethan, I can tell you more. Uh, you know, the first word he used in his public speech after the war started towards Ukrainian, the first that he called them was narkomane. Narkomane is junkies. So it's uh, mm -hmm. absolutely, I mean, the same rhetoric is the same dehumanization that is used by propaganda. First, propaganda of the war on drugs. Yeah, I mean, it, it seems I remember 30 years ago when the, with the downfall of uh, the Romanian dictator Ceausescu, exact same thing. And there have been so many other leaders who have done the same thing, using the accusation of drugs. Exactly. To, to call a person a junkie is the first step to dehumanize the person. After that, you can do whatever you want with the person. The person is not considered a human being or just a junkie, then they deserve everything. Yeah. And you have the feeling if you have a, a real true public opinion in Poland, Russia, and ask what should be done, you know, with the million or two million or three million or whatever it Maybe is, people five. who use drugs Maybe in Russia, six. five million, yeah. that some substantial minority, if not a majority, might just say, 
kill him? Well, I would say that we've been doing a lot of work with the mass media and we had a lot of partners in our narcophobia project where we tried to challenge the, uh, you know, drug war propaganda and we tried to challenge the stigma of drugs. And I would say that in the recent years, maybe like eight, nine, ten years, the attitude has started to change and people are more critical towards this concept of dehumanizing a human being because the human being is you know, using drugs. So it becomes more and more obvious for people that this doesn't work anymore. And now I think people understand more and more that drug policy can be humane. Drug policy can be based on protection of health, on protection of people's dignity, of human rights. Drug policy does not have to be based on like military or police action. It does not have to destroy people's lives. Uh, and uh, there is more and more understanding in the Russian society, in the public, that, you know, there are more effective and more more humane approaches to these issues than the war on drugs, and especially the form of the war on drugs that we had in Russia. I remember, you know, decades ago when people would point out, well, you know, one benefit of a closed society and closed borders is that they don't have much of a drug problem in Russia. And my response would be that Russia's problem, its health problem with alcohol was greater than the cumulative problem with alcohol and all illicit drugs put together in the U.S. or almost any other country. And I wonder, I mean, you know, alcohol is just seen in Russia as part of the national tradition and put in an entirely different category, right? I mean, there's that, that mentality of alcohol being a drug, just like these other drugs. Is that still a fundamentally alien idea in Russia? Well, yeah, I think it's still like a very challenging to make this cognitive kind of jump from like uh, treating alcohol as something completely like else to treating alcohol as a category of drugs or like substances, psychoactive substances. And I think it's because, yes, I mean, you are right. Alcohol is very much in like Russian tradition, uh, traditional drug. I don't know what to call it. But yes, it's uh, also because of the Soviet history and because of the uh, post-Soviet history a little bit. But people to understand that alcohol can be a harder drug than a drug drug. So it's really difficult to explain that, no, if actually you regulate other drugs, it may be easier. It's because they are not worse than alcohol. Alcohol is the worst, I mean, one of the worst drugs and the hardest drugs that we have. Uh, so it's really difficult for people to believe that alcohol, well, is almost like the hardest drug we have. And where does cannabis fit into the whole picture? Is it something where there's a more relaxed view of it? Uh, well, I think that cannabis is, I mean, like there was a cannabis, uh, like local cannabis production traditionally in Russia. If you look at the law, it's still like, you know, uh, in the same category as other prohibited drugs. But maybe culturally it's uh, like less uh, stigma as I speak, I remember like some kind of jokes or narcophobic jokes that I made about uh, cannabis smokers and some slur words that I used uh, for them. So, of course, it's like uh, ambivalent. I would say that alcohol really stands out as a like separate kind of substance that is treated differently from all the drugs. But uh, I mean, mm -hmm. there were some attempts to like 
push for marijuana legalization or even lately by the state, you know, officials to discuss or bring up the issue of medical marijuana suddenly in the press. But there was never a huge movement for legalization of marijuana in Russia for some reason. So even like in the more open times, there was some movement and there was some protests and marijuana marches were organized in Moscow for several years, but it was not like strong, strong movement. Well, Anya, listen, thank you so very, very much for taking the time to talk to me on Psychoactive. I wish you all the best. I wish you the best for your country and that things may turn in a more positive direction, you know, not just for the situation of drug users in Russia, but for the rest of the population as well. So thank you for your work, your amazing work over all these many years um, and for the work that you'll do in the future. Thank you, Ethan. Thank you so much for inviting me to speak. I mean, I'm always like the most depressing guest at the table. And I hope that at some point we will also be able to discuss amazing development and drug policy reform happening in Russia. That would be wonderful. Thank you very much. <laughs> That's my greatest hope. Thank you, Ethan. If you're enjoying Psychoactive, please tell your friends about it. Or you can write us a review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. We love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your own stories, comments, and ideas, then leave us a message at 1-833-779-2460. That's 833-PSYCHO-0. Or you can email us at psychoactive at protozoa.com or find me on Twitter at Ethan Nadelman. You can also find contact information in our show notes. Psychoactive is a production of iHeartRadio and Protozoa Pictures. It's hosted by me, Ethan Nadelman. It's produced by Noam Osband and Josh Thane. The executive producers are Dylan Golden, Ari Handel, Elizabeth Giesis, and Darren Aronofsky from Protozoa Pictures, Alex Williams and Matt Frederick from iHeartRadio, and me, Ethan Nadelman. Our music is by Ari Belusian, and a special thanks to Avivit Bar-Yosef, Bianca Grimshaw, and Robert Beebe. Next week, I'll be talking with the comedian Adam Strauss, who created a wonderful play called The Mushroom Cure, in which he talks about using psychedelics to cure his OCD. My own psychedelic experiences, humor and laughter is such a central part of them. To be very specific, I mean, the way I, I've laughed on mushrooms particularly, and, and Sasha Shogun talks about in some of, in P call this, or in T call this tryptamine laugh, it does seem to be a fairly intimate, um, and I think personally a non-trivial connection between psychedelics and laughter to me one of the one of the many powerful things about laughter is there's something humbling about it when you're laughing you're basically there's an element of surprise something you didn't see coming and i don't think it's too far uh, a reach to say that there is in the best jokes there's sort of a mind expanding element where you see a possibility or a connection that you didn't previously see and it's that that snap moment of recognition and connection that elicits the laugh. Subscribe to Psychoactive Now so you don't miss it. Snakes, zombies, sharks, heights, speaking in public. The list of fears is endless. But while you're clutching your blanket in the dark, wondering if that sound in the hall was actually a footstep, 
the real danger is in your hand, when you're behind the wheel. And while you might think a great white shark is scary, what's really terrifying and even deadly is distracted driving. Eyes forward. Don't drive distracted. Brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. Welcome to Season 9 of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. I've got some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring the one and only Chris Jenner. Oh my gosh, congratulations. That is very, very exciting. And that's just the beginning. We'll also be joined by podcast host Jay Shetty, Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, and many more. So come on in, take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.